41, but actually I would like to read verses 39 and 40 as well. So <clears throat> Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 39. Verse 39 says, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Will, will you bring me that book that's right there under, under that uh, bulletin, please? If I don't forget, there's something in there that I want to read uh, to you a little later on. Thank you, Will. There are a couple of things about this story that uh, through the years have pestered me. A couple of things. One is, how could, Jesus, how could Mary and Joseph lose their 12-year-old son and not find him for three days? So uh, I, have, I, I have come to some peaceful answers about that. And then the second thing that has pestered me through the years is, surely Jesus knew that he was going to cause his, his uh, mother and adopted father great anxiety by staying behind. He could not have been unaware of the fact that they were going to be extraordinarily anxious about the fact that their 12-year-old son was missing, and they didn't know where he was. That's the sort of thing that if it happened at my house, after finding the child, of course, there would be hugs and kisses and where were you's and all of that. And then if we found out that the child had deliberately and knowingly been away for three days, I believe that there would be some discipline that was in order. Uh, but, uh, but Jesus did not do anything worthy of discipline. I think I've come to a satisfactory answer about why that is the case as well. Uh, have you ever lost a child for just a few minutes? We have. And uh, I can remember when we had only one little girl toddling around, 
And uh, one day, Carol and I, with Elizabeth, were in Sam's Wholesale Club in West Virginia. And Carol, Carol was at one end of the aisle, and I was at the other end of the aisle, and our eyes met, and uh, we motioned, where is she? And neither one of us knew. And uh, so we were immediately filled with terror and began looking for her. It wasn't long after that until her younger sister, we found her. It, it wasn't long after that until her younger sister Abigail disappeared one day, and we positively could not find her, and we were going all over the hills of West Virginia looking for that child, only to find that she had hid under the kitchen table, under the, under the tablecloth, and she had heard us all along calling for her. And uh, so... I know a little bit what it is like to lose a child, but I never lost a child for three days. So how could Mary and Joseph lose a child for three days? I I want to possibly expand your mind about what the Holy Family was very likely like. And I'm going to do this by saying, imagine that uh, the house that adjoins your yard has been for sale And then there is a sold sign that shows up, and you go over and you talk to the realtor who's just putting up the sold sign. And uh, you you know the realtor, and she knows that you're a Christian, and so she says, well, you'll be glad to know that we sold this uh, house to a fine Christian family. You think, that's great. And then she says, "Uh, and uh, they're a homeschool family, and they have 10 children under the age of 12. And you think, this neighborhood is fixing to get real exciting. And uh, maybe, maybe you don't know any homeschool families, and you think, well, these are probably going to be very awkward children. They're under-socialized. And uh, maybe, we can, maybe we can help them. You've got, you've got children yourself who are 12, 14, 15 years old, and you think maybe they can become friends and help these kids out. So when the family moves in, you go over to welcome them. And a man opens the door who's about the size of a buffalo and has a handshake like a, uh, like a mountain lion. And he introduces himself as the father of the family. And, and here's my wife and this uh, lovely lady. Since she is a homeschool, uh, homeschool mother, let's just go ahead and say that she's in a denim jumper. And uh, she comes and uh, welcomes, <laughs> welcomes you. And uh, says, well, I'd like for, you to meet my, like for you to meet my children. And uh, so here's, here's our 12-year-old son. And uh, this very strong, athletic-looking 12-year-old grips your hand and looks you right in the eye and says, hello, my name is so-and-so. And uh, you say, well, I'm pleased to meet you. Well, I'm pleased to meet you. And I uh, just want you to know that if there's everything around your house that needs to be done... Uh, that uh, I'm, I'm uh, willing to help you, not asking for pay. And you think, well, this, this impressive kid. You say, well, I've got a son who's 12 years old. Maybe you could come over this afternoon and uh, play some video games with him. And he says, well, I don't play video games, but I see that you do have a basketball uh, goal in your driveway. I'd love to come over and play some basketball. And so he comes over that afternoon, and uh, he starts shooting around, and he... Uh, he, he does a crossover dribble and a spin move that would fake out Michael Jordan, and he just comes close to dunking the basketball. And you think, well, 
this is breaking my idea of what a homeschool family is like. And uh, the daughter comes over, she's 11 years old, and you find out that she made $20,000 last year selling labradoodles. <laughs> and, uh, and you just think, this, this is a different kind of a family. But it is an exciting place, I guarantee you. If they've got 10 kids under the age of 12, it is an exciting place. And occasionally, one or two of those kids is going to be lost for a while. But you would not be surprised if you found that boy riding his bicycle five miles out of town or backpacking five miles out of town, and you stop and say, you need a ride? And he says, no, I'm just going to go uh, camping for a few days out in the woods. And I got my my rifle here, and uh, it's going to be okay. It's going to be great. And uh, you wouldn't be at all surprised. Many of you people who have been in this church for years know the Walls family, the Troy Walls family. And uh, you know when Luke Walls was 12 years old, you wouldn't be surprised if if you saw him driving down the road in a semi-truck. You know, Uh, he, he, he was more, I didn't know Luke until he was about 14 years old. And he was more of a man at age 14 than a lot of men are at age 34. And uh, so there are, there are young people who grow up soon, young people who assume responsibility soon, and, uh, and I, I propose that Jesus was a young man like that. I propose that the Holy Family was a family something like that. The Bible nowhere specifies how many children Mary and Joseph had. The Roman Catholics insist on the perpetual virginity of Mary, but there is no biblical basis for that at all. But uh, pictures of the Holy Family that are under the influence of Roman Catholic teaching just show Mary with a halo around her head and Joseph with a halo around his head, and then Jesus all by himself, the only child in the family. Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus had four brothers, and and they named them. The Bible names them. And that he has sisters. So sisters is plural. There's at least six. And if Joseph had the same genetic code as me, me, then there were probably six or seven girls in the family. And so it's, it's not at all improbable that Jesus was the older brother and that there were 10 or 11 younger siblings beneath him. Now do you see how Mary and Joseph could lose track of Jesus on their way back from Jerusalem? Uh, We only had six, but uh, there was more than one occasion when we lost little Mary Faith at church. I think it happened three times. And we're, we're in the van driving, and, and on one occasion, several miles from church, when someone says, where's Mary Faith? And uh, so we really did love Mary Faith, and we still do. <laughs> but uh, just with all the hurry and scurry of getting everyone into the van, and uh, Mary Faith could have been off in a corner of the building making friends with a mouse, or more likely uh, scaring a flock of birds. Uh, because it just seemed like she could never see an animal at peace without running at it, screaming and yelling. And uh, But anyway, she wasn't there when we loaded into the van, and we left her at church, I think only twice, but Mary Faith insists that it was 30 or 40 times. <laughs> and uh, But uh, it, you, when you've got a big family, then you know it's, it's, you've got to count. You've got to make sure that everybody is there. Now, there's something else that kind of um, makes us have a more generous attitude towards Mary and Joseph. Uh, 
the, the custom at that time was that there would be large groups from a particular town or village that would travel to uh, Jerusalem for the Passover together. As they went along, they would sing songs, the going up songs. They're in Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. There are 15 of them of these songs of ascent, but they're songs that are going up. Jerusalem is on a, a, a high place, and wherever you, are in, wherever you are in Israel, when you go to Jerusalem, you're going up. And so there were these songs of ascent. It was a, it was a festive occasion. Uh, the women were not required to go to the Passover. The men were required to go to three feasts of the Jews, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And the women were not required to go. The fact that Mary went, I think, is indication of the piety of this family. And if, I, I think also that if Mary and Joseph went, then they probably had all of their children in tow. Not just 12-year-old Jesus, but all of their children which I would gather by this time were at least a total of seven, counting Jesus, and at all, not at all improbable that there were 10 or 11 of them. And then there was a custom that when they left, the women would, would go together. The women would be in a group at the front of the caravan, and the men would be in a group at the back of the caravan. And so it's easy to think that Mary thinks that Jesus is with Joseph. Joseph thinks that Jesus is with Mary. And they travel on for one day, and they just assume that Jesus is somewhere in their company. But at the end of that day, they find out that Jesus is not there. And so, that's day one. And then they spend day two going back to Jerusalem. And then on day three, they start looking for Jesus. Now, I had Owen Godbold uh, read, the, read the scripture reading. He's 13. He'll be 14 this year. And, uh, but if you, you know Walker Winfrey, Walker is 11. He'll be 12 in July. And so you just think of someone between, uh, between the size of, of Walker and Owen, and you, you imagine Jesus. Now, can you imagine that if, let's say, Walker, Walker got lost and, and Jimmy and Heather were looking for Walker... And they knew that he was, he was somewhere in Lexington. So they go to Lexington and they think, well, he loves to eat at this restaurant. Let's go. Maybe he went to, maybe he went to this restaurant where he loves to eat. And they go there and he's not there. They said, well, I, I know that he, he loves to, um, he loves to uh, basketball. Maybe he's gone to Rupp Arena. Maybe we'll go to Rupp Arena and look for him. And so they go to Rupp and they don't find him there. And then someone says, well, there is this uh, Bible conference going on at, uh, at a church here in Lexington. Why don't you go check for him there? Well, he, he is a devout young man. We'll go look for him there. And they go there, and there is a Bible conference, and there's a panel discussion going on. And it's got Tom Schreiner and Bruce Ware and Tom Nettles and Walker Winfrey. And, uh, you know, Tom Schreiner says something, and, and Walker says, but Dr. Schreiner, have you considered this possibility? And Schreiner, Schreiner rubs his chin and says, well, I, had, I hadn't thought of that, but that's a very good point. And, uh, and Bruce Ware says, yeah, I think maybe you should write a paper on that. And Walker says, well, maybe one day I will. This is the kind of thing that happened to a boy about the age of Walker Winfrey. 
They, they lost Jesus, and then they look for him until they find him. And when they find him, it's like, what is going on here? Of course, they had to know that he was an especially diligent student. They had to know that he was an especially good boy. But everybody, when they hear him, the text says, when they heard his questions and his answers, they were all amazed. And then it uses another astounding word when it says that when Mary and Joseph saw him, they were astonished or they were astounded. And I think part of their astonishment stems from the fact of, you stayed here without telling us. But, um, and then Mary, Mary speaks to him, and uh, she says, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. He says, Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying. But he went back to Nazareth, and he was subject to them. And then Mary treasured all these things up in her heart. Now, I have already been over some of the good things that we ought to learn from Mary and Joseph. One is that they were clearly a devout family who cared about having their family involved in the true religion. And can you imagine how much inconvenience it would be to pack up seven, eight, ten kids and take them all to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover? The indication is that they stayed for the whole seven days. The feast of the Passover was seven days. A lot of people, according to tradition, would just stay for the main day of Passover, and then they would go on home. But it says here that when the feast was over, that they started going back home. So it seems like they went to all the trouble of having their family at the Passover for seven days. What an example that is for us to say, well, it, it is not always convenient for us to go to church when they're having church, but we're going to go. Some of you came from a family like the family that I came from, and that is there was never any discussion on Sunday, Sunday on whether or not we were going to go to church. Never any discussion on Wednesday night on whether or not we were going to go to church. Uh, I played basketball, uh, but my dad told the basketball coach, uh, now Jimmy's not going to miss church on, Sunday, on Wednesday night, and so uh, if he needs to leave practice early, we will. Coaches understood. That's just going to happen. I was not, I was not going to miss church. And uh, the coaches knew, don't schedule any games on, on Wednesday night uh, because uh, Mr. Oreck won't like that. And uh, then by the time I was in high school, I had convictions about that myself. You know, some people look at regular church attendance as though it is some remnant of pit- pitiable legalism. That if you just insist on going to church all the time, then you are, you're some kind of a legalist. We need to have flexibility about these things. I, I recognize that there needs to be flexibility about these things, but you will miss so many blessings if you are not a family that says, we are going to be at church all the time. I, I think of uh, Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is a very, a very honest, very heart-provoking psalm. The psalmist starts off with uh, revealing to us that he had been in a desperately depressed spiritual condition. And he says, here's the reason why I was. I was in a desperately depressed spiritual condition because I envied the wicked. I looked at how wicked people had money. I looked at how wicked people had friends. 
I looked at how wicked people had health. I looked at how wicked people had kids that were, were healthy and fine and doing great in school. And then I looked at myself at my lame life. And I thought, what good is it for me to be a holy man? What good is it for me to try and live a righteous life? Surely in vain I have washed my hands in innocence. And I'm so mad about this that there's nobody that I can even talk to about this. But then it came time to go to church. Now, I know they didn't go to church in the Old Testament. They went to the synagogue or they went to the temple. But, but just humor me. But then it came time to go to church. And he thought, well, I'm going to go to church. People there will miss me. Maybe some of them will call me, wonder why I'm not there. I'm going to go to church. And so he goes to church and he's in a huff. But then when he gets there, I can just imagine what happens. He sees people that he's known for a long time and they're glad to see him and they welcome him. That big old ice cube in his heart starts to melt a little bit. And then they sing a song and he likes music. And that song begins to melt that ice cube in his heart a little bit more. And then he looks across the aisle and he sees this poor widow who doesn't have two pennies to rub together and he thinks I've been feeling sorry for myself because I don't have much money look at her look at her singing look at her singing like a bird not a care in the world praising the Lord then he looks across the aisle and he says and and look at this guy his his child died last year through a lingering disease And I'm upset because my kid is not making A's in school. And that ice cube just melts into a dripping puddle. And then he turns to the Lord and he says, I've I've been like an animal before you. I'm so sorry. I, I let go of your hand, but you held me by my right hand. And then he concludes his poem by saying, whom have I in heaven but you? And being with you, there is no one that I desire on earth. Well, that's not what you were saying about five minutes ago. What made the difference? He said, I felt this way until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I saw some things that I hadn't been seeing. And what brought all this about? Well, what brought all this about was that his mom and his daddy said, Son, when the church doors are open, it's time to go to church. We are going to make a priority out of going to church. And yeah, there are times when we might not make it, but it needs to be something really serious that we're not going to go to church. And I I just think that Mary and Joseph were that kind of a family. Now, this is one of the few glimpses that we get into the life of Jesus. There are only about four or five statements that give us any indication of the life of Jesus between the time that he was dedicated when he was 33. 33 days old, and the time when he appears publicly to Israel is baptized when he's about 30. So we mostly don't know anything, but there are a few things that we know. And a couple of them are in this text of Scripture. It says that he went down to Nazareth and he was subject to them. He obeyed his parents. But to the point that I'm making right now, there's something that says, there's something that one of the Scriptures says when he entered the synagogue, it says this, and he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day as his custom was. And that tells us something about these, these hidden years. It tells us that Jesus had established a custom. And that was, when it's time to meet with the people of God, 
I'm going to be there with the people of God. And so Mary and Joseph, they had, uh, they, they created an atmosphere where this was developed in Jesus and, and developed, I trust, in their other children as well. Mary and Joseph are, are an admirable family, if for nothing else than for this. I think it's also admirable that they, that they trusted Jesus when they didn't mean for him to stay behind for three, week, uh, for three days in Jerusalem. But they were letting him ramble free to some extent. And, uh, and they, they trusted Jesus. When Jesus was gone, then they searched for him. And there's a spiritual lesson for us there. And they searched for him until they found him. And then what they could not understand, they just treasured up and they thought about it. And eventually, it was made clear to them. But, of course, the star of this story is not Mary and Joseph. The star of this story is Jesus himself. And there are several important things that this story tells us about Jesus. And one thing is that it is a manifestation of his humanity. A manifestation of his humanity. Let me show you a couple of things here. First of all, in verse 40, it says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now couple that with verse 52, which says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And I say this is a, this is a manifestation of his humanity. How so? Because he learned things. As a human being, Jesus had to learn how to walk. Jesus had to learn how to talk. There was almost certainly a time when Jesus could not speak plainly. Jesus had to learn to be potty trained. Jesus had to learn to read. He probably learned to read in three languages. He could probably speak three languages, uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Uh, and he, but he had to learn you say, well, I, th- I thought that God knows everything. God does know everything, and God can't learn anything. So how was it that Jesus, who is God, could learn wisdom? It's because he was not only God, he was also human. And as a human, he had to learn. We find that Jesus knows the Scriptures extraordinarily well. I doubt if God just zapped this knowledge into his head. He knew the scriptures so well that he could could interact with the greatest theological minds in Jerusalem of all places. He could interact with the greatest theological minds, and I think it was because he had studied the scriptures so thoroughly. Now, to be sure, God had blessed him. But I don't think that we should just say, well, but he cheated. His divine nature communicated with his human nature. There are numerous places in the Bible that say that Jesus learned something. As a, he, uh, Jesus, John chapter 5. Now when he saw a man lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? So Jesus was a real human, and this passage of Scripture reveals that he was a human. This scripture also reveals some things about Jesus' faithfulness. I've already emphasized that he was faithful to, uh, to, 
to the ordinances of God when it was time to go to the Passover, even though Jesus did not have to go until he was 13, here at age 12, he is going. Now, it could be that Mary and Joseph took the whole family, but, uh, but Jesus goes, and we may be sure that he did not go begrudgingly. He goes willingly. He was faithful to the ordinance of God. He was faithful to the house of God. I've already emphasized that. But of course, <clears throat> the house of God is a metaphor for the people of God. And Jesus was faithful to the people of God. He met together with the people of God. And as I have, again, already intimated, he was faithful to the word of God because a boy at age 12 doesn't gain this level of expertise without some pretty consistent application. And so Jesus, this passage of scripture, manifests that our Lord was very faithful as a young man. Now, as I have prepared and thought about this sermon, I've thought especially about the young people in this congregation. Some of you hear me every week. And you have not yet repented of your sins. You have not yet received Christ. Now, I'm going to guess that some of you are probably the way that 12-year-old Jimmy Oric was. And that is, one of these days, I'm going to give my life to Christ. But right now, there's just something that I would like to do. And I'm not sure that the Lord approves of it. And I, uh, I, I don't want God telling me what to do. I'm afraid that Christians uh, lead a boring life, and I think that I can manage my life better than God can. And I don't know that any of this series of thoughts that I have just speculated went through my mind. I don't know that they ever materialized into that coherent of a statement. So I don't know what's going through your mind. I'm not exactly sure what was going through my mind, but it wasn't until I was age 14 that uh, the Lord called, and I answered and gave my life to the Lord. One of the prayers that I offer on a, on, a, on a fairly regular basis is, Lord, thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving me when I was young. Thank you for calling me to preach when I was young. I hope that uh, that will be a prayer that some of you will be able to pray for the rest of your lives, that you who are not yet converted will say, why should I put it off? Why should I continue to delay? At age 12, Jesus was already a dedicated follower of his God and Father. I am going to be a dedicated follower of the Lord from now on. You say, well, I'm not exactly sure if the Lord is calling me. I would say that very few people are aware that God is calling them when God is calling them. Because God uses things like the circumstances of life. He uses things like your fear of hell. He uses things like the sense that you are going to waste your life. He uses thoughts like that to make you say, I I want to be saved. I want to be a Christian. I don't want to be anything but a Christian. I want to give my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. And so it is my prayer, and it has been my prayer, that the Lord would use this sermon to call those of you who are not yet Christians to say, I will be a Christian today, God helping me. 
And then I would suppose that among a congregation like this, there are some people who you think, oh, I believe that I am saved. Even my mom and my dad think that I'm saved. But I have never come out publicly for Jesus. But that's all going to change today. I do believe, you might think, I do believe that I am saved. And as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I need to follow him in baptism. And even today, I am going to speak to my parents. And I know that they're going to speak to the pastors. And I want them to talk to me about my salvation. And I want to follow the Lord in baptism. May God use this sermon. I'm not finished with it. So may God use this sermon like that in your life. Now, like I said, Jesus is the star of this passage of Scripture. It is a manifestation of his humanity. It is a a manifestation of his faithfulness in several areas. And I think that it is also a, a demonstration of his patience. A demonstration of his patience. And I think that's true on a couple of counts. Number one, by the time Jesus was 12 years old, that scripture in Psalm 119 could be said accurately of him, I have more understanding than all my teachers, because your law is my meditation day and night. I have more understanding than my teachers. And at this time, Jesus already had great insight that many of the scholars of his day did not have. But even though he had this great knowledge, he still had to sit on the bench for another 18 years. And he was somebody who easily could have stepped into the starting lineup. Easily someone who could have been the GOAT, the greatest of all time. And instead, he's sitting on the bench for another 18 years. I want to read to you uh, 10 or 11 lines from a book on the lessons in Proverbs by Richard C. Trench. It's a wonderful book. I, I bought this book for this one specific proverb because I read this proverb in the sermons of Alexander White many years ago. In, in the sermons of Alexander White, the proverb appeared this way, the Here it is. The stone that is fit for the wall will not be left to lie in the ditch. I've always been fascinated by these stone walls that are, especially through the the bluegrass area of Kentucky. There's there's one that goes in front of Shelbyville High School, but you all know what I'm talking about. These, These field stone walls that are put together, and after 200 years, maybe more, they still stand. They're still beautiful. That, that has always fascinated me. I've, I've tried my hand at a little bit of stonework, enough to know that uh, when, when you have any kind of facility at all at building a wall, there are certain shape of stones that you look for. There are certain principles of wall building that you implement so that your wall, if it falls, it will fall into itself, you know, things like that. And so when you're building something, you're looking for just that right stone, and then your eye fixes, that is the stone that belongs in the wall right here. And so as I first encountered it, the, the, the proverb was, the stone that is fit for the wall will not be left to lie in the ditch. Here's how Mr. Trench explains it. 
A Persian proverb, a stone that is fit for the wall is not left in the way. And then he has this comment about it. It is a saying made for them who appear for a while to be overlooked, neglected, passed by. Who perceive in themselves capacities which as yet no one else has recognized or cared to turn to account. And then Richard C. Trent, you know, so he says, this is for someone who knows that they have talent, but they're not being given an opportunity to exercise that talent. This is someone who knows that they could do the job well, but they are persistently passed over, passed over so that someone else of lesser ability is chosen to fill that position. And here's Richard Trench's comments on that. Only be fit for the wall. Square, polish, prepare thyself for it. So he says, little rock, you want to be in the wall someday? Well, don't just lie there in the ditch. Make yourself square. Make yourself polished. Prepare yourself for the time when you're going to be put in the wall. Do not limit thyself to the bare acquisition of such knowledge as is absolutely necessary for thy present position. That is, don't just barely get by now. Acquire knowledge. Learn languages. Acquire useful information. Stretch thyself out on this side and on that, cherishing and making much of whatever aptitudes thou findest in thyself. And it is certain thy turn will come. Thou wilt not be left in the way. Sooner or later, the builders will be glad of thee. And that's my admonition to you talented young people. Remember Jesus, who was a stone that was fit for the wall. But for 30 years, God left him sitting on the bench. For 30 years, God left him Lying in the ditch. But then, one day that master wall builder said, You know, I need, I need a cornerstone for this building. I need a chief cornerstone for this building. And he looks down there in Nazareth of Galilee and he finds this 30-year-old carpenter working away in the carpenter shop. And he says, you are just the stone that I need. And the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is God's doing. And it is marvelous in our sight. And then another reason why I say that this is a manifestation of Jesus' patience is that, well, look at what it says there in verse 52, or verse 51. So they didn't understand... But he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. What what a rebuke to you children who are not being submissive to your parents. You think you know better than your mom or dad? Man, Jesus really did know better than his mom and dad. But yet he was submissive to them. Now, in the introduction, I said there were a couple of things that bothered me, and one of them was how could Mary and Joseph lose Jesus? And the other thing was this. I haven't answered it yet. How could Jesus deliberately, voluntarily do something that would cause his family so much anxiety? 
I think one key is found in this exchange between Mary and Joseph. I mean, Mary and Jesus. Mary says to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And Jesus says, Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Jesus is declaring at the age of 12, I've come to understand who I am. I've come to understand something of the purpose that God has for me. I am God's son. Joseph, what a good, godly man he is. But Joseph is not my father. I'm in my father's house. And I am always going to prioritize my heavenly father over my earthly family. And you know, that sounds just a little bit cheeky and a little bit ungrateful to us, but it's exactly the way that it must be for everyone. Jesus says, unless a man hates his mother and father and sister and brother and children and wife and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, the Lord is using metaphorical language there. He's not teaching us that we should actually harbor malicious feelings towards our relatives. But what he's saying is, your dedication to me must be so great that all other dedications appear to be hatred in contrast. And so what Jesus demonstrates here is a lesson that Mary and Joseph needed to learn, and it's a lesson that we also need to learn. God must be first in our lives. And whatever is in second place must be so far behind the finish line that we can't even see it coming over the hill yet. So I think that Jesus did deliberately take this opportunity to say lovingly, as gently, but as pronouncedly as needed to be said, I am here in my father's house and on my father's business. I have asked uh, Jim Bob to lead us in a hymn of conclusion that makes reference to this. This is uh, one of the songs that Isaac Watts, the divine and moral songs for children. And so it gives us Jesus as an example. You won't know the words, but you perhaps will remember the melody of faith is the victory. So Jim Bob, please lead us in this song. <clears throat>